Finding your way to a balanced way of living is the key to health and happiness. Each week on Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes, you'll hear tips and tools for a happier and healthier life. Here's your host, Anita Westlake. Diabetes is becoming a global epidemic. In the U.S. alone, we have 29.1 million people living with diabetes. In addition to this, we have another 85 million Americans that are pre-diabetic or borderline, where their sugars are higher than normal, but not quite high enough to be classified as a diabetic. Many of these people, a high ratio, will develop diabetes. Why is this happening? Well, one theory is a lot of these people are insulin resistant. But what does that even mean, insulin resistant, and how does it happen? Well, today my guest, Dr. John Puthalil, author of Eat, Chew, Live, has a revolutionary new theory on why people are developing diabetes and what we can do to possibly prevent this or even reverse it. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Puthalil. I'm really excited about this and discussing why diabetes is in such epidemic proportions and what is it that, you know, is insulin resistance means, because I think there's a lot of confusion in this area um, between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Thank you, Anita, for having me on your show. I also thank the listeners of Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes. As, uh, may I uh, explain why I do not subscribe to the current theory of insulin resistance. Absolutely, and we will get into that because that's, this is the essence of the show today. But I'd like to clear up for the in- listeners the difference, because I think there's so much confusion on the different types of diabetes. Um, type 2 is a whole other world than type 1 diabetes. So type 1 diabetes which I have, is when you have no other choice of medication rather than just insulin. That's that's my choice. If I'm going to take medication, it's going to be insulin. My body doesn't produce insulin anymore or not enough for um, sugar to get into my cells. And we'll get into how that happens in a few minutes. So I am a type 1 diabetic. And you basically have that for one reason. My immune system attacks my insulin-producing cells, the beta cells, and they um, no longer will produce insulin. And over a period of time, of course, we have less and less of these cells because my immune system constantly attacks. Even if I was to produce new cells, my immune system will attack the new insulin-producing cells. So that's type 1. Type 2, which I'm going to hand over to you, is a whole other Really, it's a whole other condition slash disease, although our symptoms are very similar. So when it comes to high blood sugars, low blood sugars, um, they're very similar. And of course, more and more type 2 diabetics are taking insulin, although there is options there for them. And of course, a lot of these people are uh, pre-diabetics at the beginning or borderline diabetics at the beginning. So they're very different causes of these conditions. They're both called diabetes, and they have a lot of similarities, but not in the reasons why we have them. So in a nutshell, have I captured 
I would say, the essence of type 1, in your opinion? I'm sorry, say that again? I've, I've, I think I've explained type 1 diabetes, um, you know, in very layman terms, but nevertheless explained it. In your opinion, Correct. right, okay. So where I'd like to start off now is talking about type 2, because I think there's so much confusion around which kind of diabetes do I have? when really uh, there's many, many different reasons that are out there why a person has type 2, but only one reason why a person has type 1. Now, there's always going to be the um, exception to the rule. I've met people that have no other choice other than insulin. So they're, they're really, they are called a type 1 diabetic, but they've been in a car accident where their uh, pancreas has been damaged. And so their treatment is going to be the same as a type 1 diabetic. And perhaps even in a cure, they would be treated the same as a type 1 diabetic because of severe damage due to an accident uh, done to their pancreas. But type 2 is a whole different animal. Right. Uh, as you correctly pointed out, any exhaustion of the cells that produce insulin, any damage to the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin can gradually reduce the body's ability to generate insulin and release it at the appropriate time. So gradually you become dependent on insulin. So that is very clear whether the cause is from childhood, due to an accident, due to a trauma, due to medications, due to cancer or surgery, it doesn't matter. It is all uh, uh, type in the same category of type 1. Where we don't produce our own, we, we have to take artificial. Yes. When, when, you, when it comes to type 2, the current theory is which has been, by the way, in existence for almost 80 years, that your body is producing enough insulin, but somehow the cells are resisting the signal from insulin. Now, the, the thing that perplexed me the most was, out of 200 different cell types, only three decide to become resistant. Cells in the fat tissue, muscles, and the liver. In other words, the cells in these three sites do not respond to insulin even when insulin and glucose are present outside. Which, so is, the question, which is, that's fascinating. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I no. want to go back. I want to explain something else to the listeners that I, I was not aware of. I, I love the way you explain this. In theory, I was aware that, yes, okay, so uh, glucose enters the blood, and this is the way I was taught. Now, remembering that, you know, my teaching went back to a, a child, so they wanted to simplify it. But I've heard this time and time again from many people that have just gone through diabetic management for the first time in our adults. So glucose is in the bloodstream. We've eaten something. It's broken down. We'll, we'll keep this really simple. Now, glucose is in the bloodstream, and insulin is called, the body calls upon insulin to take care of this and take it to the cells. And really, they've said it kind of just sweeps it over. So I thought insulin was a major, major contributor to ins uh, sorry glucose entering the cell level. When you so uh, put it so well, pardon me, that really insulin just notifies cells that there's glucose here. It doesn't actually transport it to the cell and says, here you go, cell, you're taking it. 
And if you could yeah. explain that, I think that helps people in their minds understand what is actually going on and the role insulin plays in taking glucose out of our bloodstreams. As soon as the blood sugar level goes up in response to absorption of nutrients, in this case glucose, from your intestine after a meal, the glucose will enter the pancreas and the islet cells or the pancreatic cells that are responsible for producing and releasing insulin will crank up their factory, produce more insulin and release that into the blood. Insulin will accompany the glucose to each and every cell in the body. Then insulin is like more like a traveling salesman. It's bringing glucose with it and notifying the cell by ringing the bell called the insulin receptor, which is on the wall. In other words, glucose by itself cannot notify the the cell that I am outside because there is no receptor or cell for glucose, whereas there is one for insulin. Once insulin rings the bell, it is up to the cell to decide whether that glucose should enter the cell or not. Otherwise, just imagine if insulin can push glucose into the cell, the first few cells insulin and glucose encounter will be saturated with glucose if insulin can push it in without the cell wanting it or needing it. So each cell as an independent living unit has to have the capability to let in what nutrients it needs. So the cell, in other words, in the case of insulin, has to mobilize a transporter just like a truck or a car from the interior of the cell to the cell wall create an opening, accept the glucose, and then transport it right back to the energy-producing factory inside the cell. So really, just, so, to, just to give a visual, we could say that it's just like receiving goods. If, if you were to deliver, as you, uh, as you put it, and I, I love that because it's such an easy thing to visualize, insulin would notify, ring a doorbell, you know, I've got some, I've got some goods for you here. And then this each cell, so they're independent, would send just, you know, a dolly or, or some kind of, you know, forklift to the door, open the door and say, this is how much I have room for and I will allow in when it comes to glucose. Precisely. And so it can can span all of these cells, but each cell independently is going to choose how much it will take and what it has room for. Correct. Depending on its metabolic activities or if it has got other other fuel available, you know, already some fuel available, it does not need as much glucose. Now, when you say other fuel available and, and insulin in the cells, in your book, and not to confuse the matter, but I do want to touch on this because it's so uh, very important for people to understand that when you say fuel available, this cell already may be at its maximum and has fuel and doesn't have the need or want for any more. Insulin um, is ringing the doorbell and make it available to all cells, and it's up to them to say whether they need it. 
But All insulin right. doesn't have to ring the bell. And this is what I found so fascinating. I know that exercise and warming up the muscles is very important in managing the body, and especially in the case of diabetes. But I thought it was because it made insulin stronger. But in reading your book, um, I have found the information to say that the, the cell does not necessarily need insulin when there's exercise on board to receive glucose. The cells are programmed to have fuel to produce energy. When the cells are exercising, when they are active, especially muscle cells, which use 80% of the glucose that we consume anyway, that's the biggest consumer of glucose in the body. When the muscle cells are active, they need glucose to enter the cell. They have to facilitate the entry. And at that time, it will send the glucose transport modules to the cell wall to accept glucose, whether insulin is present or not. That is a natural way for muscles to keep working. So in essence, when they tell us as diabetics, it doesn't matter which type of diabetes you have, how important exercise is because it keeps our medications down, it is, uh, it is true to form. It keeps our medications down because it's not really needed. The more exercise that we can do and help our bodies in that way, uh, we do require less insulin, not because it makes it stronger, it's because it's really not needed the, as the, much. The, correct. The, the, mo the most important thing you have to remember is if you take insulin injection and then forget to eat or you did not have time to eat and you're on your way to a gym or an exercise class, you could drop your blood sugar far faster than you are used to because the exercise alone will be enough to push the glucose into the cell. And that's even stored glucose. Yes. So that's when you can have a low blood sugar. And um, low blood sugars are things that we don't want. We don't want high, but we don't want low. So it's that constant balance that we have to remember. I just think these are, are wonderful explanations in the foundation um, of diabetes, whether in its management, rather, because sometimes they're not really explained to us properly. We just think, oh, well, I'll always need insulin, and I always need pretty much this kind, but if I exercise, it makes it work a little bit better, when really... The, the truth of the matter is that when the body is exercising and these um, muscles are, are warmed up, that we really don't need insulin in order for this glucose to enter the cells. And as you put it, 80% of this glucose is absorbed by muscle cells. Correct. So that's a really important factor. 20% may affect your blood sugar, but not like the 80% of these muscle cells that are um, accepting glucose will. Yes, 80% of the glucose that enters the body is used by muscle activity uh, to produce energy. So these, these are great reasons why we should be exercising. They're not just, well, it'll make it stronger, but I'm just, I just love your explanation. So I'm going over and over it again. I'm sorry, but I just think that's so, so important for people to realize. So again... Right. Again, with diabetes. So now we know that insulin isn't actually just sweeping it. It's ringing a doorbell, and then the cell can accept it or not. So how right. does someone yeah. become insulin 
resistant. Right. Coming back to that question of insulin resistance, if you look at people who are diagnosed as type 2 diabetics, diabetic, diabetic, they, it is not based on a measurement of insulin resistance. It is strictly based on blood sugar level and your age and perhaps you are overweight. Now, this can produce rather major complications or uh, can put somebody in danger. Uh, Anita, may I tell the readers a story of JG that uh, I briefly touched on with you? Oh, yes, I think it's a wonderful story. And just uh, to give a little, a little bit uh, more to your story, I think this happens uh, frequently, as in the case of JD. And um, I, I want people to really listen to this and think about what happened to this individual. So go ahead. JD was a 25-year-old overweight male when he went to the doctor with a history of frequent urination and excessive thirst. He was diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic when the laboratory test showed a high level of sugar in his blood. He had steadily gained weight during the four years prior to the diagnosis. However, he had no family history of diabetes. He was given at that time twice daily oral medications along with insulin injections. Soon after the diagnosis, he decided to go on a reduced calorie diet plan and lost almost 62 pounds. And he found that he can stop all his diabetic medications. However, shortly afterwards, he could not stick with the commercial diet and he went back to his own previous way of eating and regained almost 60 pounds. For the second time, he was diagnosed as type 2 diabetic. This time his A1C test showed 13.7, which is far above the average safe range of less than 6 or 5.7 to be accurate. When I first I, when I met JG the, for the first time, it is in January of this year, 2015, he was 39 years of age. At that time, he was on two different medications by mouth, one to reduce insulin resistance of cells in his body, and another to remove glucose through his kidney. He was also taking two different injections, one designed to stimulate his pancreas to keep releasing insulin for days at a time, a long-acting form of uh, insulin releaser, and a second, a long-acting insulin. My objective in meeting JG was to have JG read the manuscript of the book I was planning to publish and get his feedback on his read on the readability of the book. And that book is I, the book we're discussing, Eat, Chew, Live. Correct, exactly. I asked him whether he was a type 1 diabetic, and he said he had been told that he was a type 2 diabetic. I told him that the book was primarily for adults diagnosed with the condition of prediabetes, 
to prevent them from becoming diabetics. He agreed to read it and gave me his impressions. After reading the manus- manuscript, he decided to practice what is presented in the book to prevent diabetes in people with pre-diabetes. His reasoning was that since he was once able to get off diabetic medications using the reduced calorie intake diet plan, he would be able to make the dietary modifications I suggested in my book to reduce the amount of medications needed to control his own blood sugar. He also thought that the dietary modifications recommended in my book were much easier to continue for the rest of his life. So, as specified in the book, he avoided grain products such as bread, pasta, rolls, and rice with almost immediate lowering of his blood sugar levels. In fact, he started experiencing symptoms of low blood sugar especially after his workouts and at night. He started reducing his oral medications and later his doctor agreed to a very cautious reduction of his insulin dosage. Finally, almost three months after our first meeting, he stopped insulin injections completely. Now, all of this is very impressive, by the way. It it is, but what happened next was shocking. His blood sugar remained around high 100 to low 200 milligrams for almost two weeks. Then, one day, he started vomiting. When he reached the emergency room, he was hyperventilating. He was admitted to the hospital with a diagnosis of diabetic ketoacidosis. As you all know, this is a condition that occurs in type 1 diabetic. Let's just give a little explanation on exactly what ketones or ketone acidosis is in general so that the listeners, because they might not actually have, they might be aware of them to some degree but may not have had them. So a little description would be very helpful. Anita, Anita, you are more qualified to give that (laughs) than I am. Go ahead. It's when you, uh, when the liver is overworked. And again, I'm keeping this very, very layman. So the liver is overworked. You don't have enough glucose that is passed into the cells used for energy and the body has to go to the liver. The liver is overworked and releases gases at this point. It's like an emergency signal. I can't handle this. And those gases are in essence choking to our body. So your shortness of breath, you start to vomit, you lose great amounts of weight. All of those happen when you produce ketones. They can be measured in the blood and that is a test that primarily is done in in the hand around the wrist area, and they can also be tested in the urine. So if you've ever been asked, um, test for ketones, and then there's a measurement of small, moderate, and high ketones, this is what's happened to the body. And in some cases, I'm actually horrified to say that I have um, uh, met with people that have had this measurement done when they've been trying to lose weight, and that shows them success that they're losing weight because when ketones are present, you are burning 
fat and not in a healthy way. Now, in some cases, they were testing and they wanted to keep it at trace. Well, that could happen. But many of these people that have experienced this told me they got to small to moderate amounts of ketones in their system. So this is something we do not want. We don't want this. And when it comes to diabetes, this happens to type 1 diabetics. I don't know about type 2 as much. Um, I think not, rather than maybe if they're on a very strict uh, weight loss program. But in type 1, it can happen to us. And this is when your sugars run high for a period of time. Your uh, healthcare professional will and probably has strongly suggest that you test for ketones. And this is why. As you pointed out, Anita, the liver, in an attempt to produce fuel for the cells that cannot accept glucose, will break down fatty acids and produce what is called small fatty acid compounds. And it is from those small fatty acid compounds the muscles and other cells derive energy and when they, the small fatty acid compounds are bro- broken down, the end products are not carbon dioxide and water as in the case of glucose being the fuel, but fatty acids. And the acids stay in the blood because the body has no mechanism to take it out of the b- body and they accumulate and to one way the body can get them out of the body is through breathing the acetone out which is made from the uh, acid which is the smaller form or the small acid compounds that the liver produced in type 2 diabetics there is no ketone bodies produced so there is no ketoacidosis but they can get a form of acidosis called lactic acidosis, which is different from ketoacidosis. And that happened some time ago with another oral medication called fenformin, which has been taken out of the market in the United States. However, the fenformin oral medication is still available in countries outside the United States and sometimes somebody may bring in that medication and take that medication and have lactic acidosis even though they are type 2 diabetics. So the acidity of the blood is high similar to what happens in ketoacidosis but the mechanism is very very different. Is it as dangerous? It is not as dangerous as ketoacidosis. Ketoacidosis in its severe form can be life-threatening. Right, and this is when you hear people going into a coma or if you've ever heard someone just say um, you can smell almost like sweet off a diabetic's breath, you know, maybe like dried apples. That's always used as an example. The fruity smell. That is ketones, ketone acidosis. That is essentially acetone, which is present in nail polish, for example. The same acetone. Nail polish remover. And we're not using that on our nails quite often. Why would we want that in our body? So it is a dangerous thing, but in type 2, it's not present. So obviously JD had type 1 diabetes. Correct. 
And the reason why he was not diagnosed is what is interesting to me. If we had a test to measure the degree of insulin resistance, this could have been picked up 14 years ago. But and he would have been treated in a whole different manner. Correct. Unfortunately, such a test is still not available. Yet we are told that type 2 diabetes is based on insulin resistance of certain cells deciding on their own to resist the signal from insulin. Why it happens and how it happens is still a mystery to me. In your book, you talk about two different theories on why they say people are developing diabetes. So many people's bodies have decided that, oh, I'm just insulin resistant now. These cells don't want to accept um, the signal from insulin. But when they're given all these different medications, it will to some degree. In type 2 diabetics, they say there are two reasons why the blood sugar goes up. Everything goes back to the elevation of blood sugar. Why is the blood sugar going up? Because that is the basis for diagnosis. And they divide into two parts. One is insulin resistance. The other is not, secre not secreting enough insulin by the pancreas. Both of these are based on the presence of high blood sugar. In the case of insulin resistance, the hallmark is these people are producing insulin, there is plenty of insulin around, at the same time the glucose level is also high. The presence of both of these laboratory findings together, they say it must be because the cell is resisting insulin. Over a period of time, the pancreatic cells get exhausted. Just like every cell in the body, every organ in the body, they have a lifespan. So if you keep stimulating the pancreatic cells with high blood sugar over a long, long period of time, they may get exhausted. And also keep in mind, many of these people are on medications which also stimulate the pancreas to keep releasing insulin. And finally, they give up. So then they are dependent on insulin. And nowadays, the doctors are starting people on insulin earlier and earlier because they have produced so many varieties of insulin and convinced the people that insulin can control their blood sugar better and more conveniently than oral medications. But there's some holes in these theories that you've pointed out in your book. That is correct. I have not been able to find out a clear uh, test that established the presence of insulin resistance in the first place. Yes, they did do a laboratory test and they presented it as a gold standard test of the presence of insulin resistance However, if you go deeper into that test, you will find that the test is run by introducing insulin and glucose into the vein of a study subject in the laboratory and measuring the amount of glucose released by the liver at the same time. The concept is 
since insulin is present outside, ordinarily the liver should not release any glucose into the blood when insulin is outside. But in these people, the liver continues to release glucose and they claim that this proves the presence of insulin resistance. That's, that's like doing a test for emotional intelligence, or called EQ, and presenting the score as that of IQ, or intelligence quotient. The tests are similar, but they measure different things. In the case of this gold standard test, it is the evidence is that liver cells are not responding to insulin. That does not mean they are resisting. They are ignoring insulin. In, in my view, if somebody comes to you and if you ignore that person, that is different from you trying to resist or push that person away. You have to have a mechanism and a reason to push that person away. Otherwise, you may go side by side, just ignore the person. So what reason the liver cells has to refuse the signals from insulin, that is what has not been clearly explained. So you've really gone a step further than just um, diagnosis treatment, because the diagnosis that they're saying is abnormal blood sugars. And the treatment, more often than not, is insulin in the case of type 2. Because type 1, as we have stated, there is no other treatment. But in type 2, this seems to get it under control and put a Band-Aid on it for the time being. That, that is the more interesting question, that if you are resistant to insulin, and if there is more insulin outside the cell, how can you become suddenly sensitive? What is the reason? What is the mechanism? The more insulin outside, how does the cell even know that there are more insulin because there's only so many receptors on the side? And if the insulin level is already high, giving them more insulin, how can it make the cell more sensitive or wanting to accept more glucose inside i I, i'm i understand what you're saying you're flooding something that initially what you're saying is the cells resisting it and yet you're flooding the body with even more of something that this cell is resisting so how does this work right that's exactly my question I, i don't have a clear answer i have talked with endocrinologists and experts uh they just want us to accept what they say Somehow, maybe the body is resisting insulin that is produced internally, but accepting insulin that you put into the system from outside. How can a cell differentiate between the two insulins? I don't know. Well, I I do feel that an endocrinologist, just to clear this up for those that don't know, is um, someone who specializes in diabetes, the study of diabetes or the internal works of the body. Um, but I think a lot of them are just trying to deal with the mass amount of people coming to them for help. You've gone a step further and said, why are, is diabetes rising all the time? 
why are we saying people are insulin resistant? It just seems to be a phrase that we're using right now, some sort of an explanation. But I've been uh, fortunate enough to, to be present during um, talks where doctors, some doctors have said they're really not sure why. There, it could be a combination of so many things to unravel it, they find, is is huge, absolutely gigantic. You're saying the same, you're saying, in essence, maybe not as gigantic, but you're saying the same thing. How could it just be for this reason, or only these two reasons, that there's gaping holes in these theories? What I would like to see is, let's go back and look at the presence of HIV and AIDS. Within 25, 30 years of the first appearance of AIDS virus or HIV virus in the American continent, we discovered the structure of the virus, how the mode of transmission, and how to prevent it. We have had this theory of insulin resistance for over 80 years. If we have not been able to identify the exact reason why three out of 200 cell types decide to resist insulin, and is the reasoning the same in at each cell type or each organ, do they resist insulin for the same reason? And how can it appear in adult life and now even younger and younger, these cells decide to resist a hormone that they have been responding all this life from the day these organs were in existence, they were responding to insulin and suddenly decide to resist it. If we cannot explain that in 80 years, perhaps we should start thinking this is not the right theory. That's a long time, 80 years. Correct. A very long time. And in, in some of the gaping holes that you found, if you could just give us some examples, and that could lead us to your, your theory, which is really interesting and it's something that we should definitely be reading about in your book and having a look at. The, the gaping holes that I'm talking about is starts with the fact that if the muscle cells, let's take muscle cells for example, are not able to use glucose for fuel and uh, uh, because of insulin resistance. There should be some evidence of the body's inability to maintain body heat. Now, let, let's examine this a little bit more. In every home, there is a furnace, in, especially in the cold climates, like in the Amer uh, Canada and the United States, that produces heat or generates heat to keep the house warm. How does the body keep warm almost at a constant temperature? The inner temperature of the body, the core temperature, almost constant it, it varies maybe one or two degrees otherwise it is maintained very precisely because that is needed for all the body's organs to function how does that happen we don't have a furnace the this heat that is 
maintaining maintained in the body is generated by active cells and muscle cells contribute a lot to maintain body heat if muscles cannot function because they cannot accept glucose when they resist insulin how can the body maintain the temperature but yet there is no evidence that people with type 2 diabetes have problems maintaining their body temperature this means muscles are producing energy they are releasing heat if not glucose something else is used as the fuel the second interesting interesting i didn't i didn't think of it in that way right the second hole that i see is if muscles are not able to generate energy from glucose every diabetic should be walking into the clinic with less muscle power they should be tired with with any little exercise because how can they generate energy without glucose yet people who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes they run they play they jump they dance they ski they walk they are often aging seniors yet they don't have any loss loss of muscle power compared to others who don't have diabetes this also means that the muscles are using some other fuel if not glucose to produce energy the third thing i find interesting is going back to the liver the liver responds to the presence of insulin by doing two things one it stops releasing glucose into the blood second it produces fat from excess glucose both in the presence of insulin now in type in persons with type 2 diabetes their blood sugar is high and they point this out as an indication of liver resisting insulin and keep releasing glucose however they also have high fat content in the blood this fat is measured as triglyceride if you look in your blood test along with cholesterol there will be a triglyceride and that is invariably high in people with type 2 diabetes in fact the level of triglyceride will start going up months or e- even years before their blood sugar start going up if the liver cells are resistant to insulin how can they produce triglyceride as instructed by the insulin shall i go on for more or oh a few more because this is fascinating in many diseases if they they are resisting something there should be an agent like an antibody that prevents an agent from fun or the hormone from functioning and insulin can be similarly blocked by the production of antibodies that is very possible yet type 2 diabetics in general don't have an antibody to block the action of insulin or its 
attachment to the cell receptor as we pointed out earlier the doorbell there is nothing blocking the cell uh, from accepting insulin into its receptor there is no for the vast majority of cases there are a few people with antibodies to insulin that can affect insulin function and the other point is there is no evidence that the insulin produced by people of uh, who are having type 2 diabetes is any different from insulin that is normally produced in a person with without type 2 diabetes nor is there any evidence that the receptors on the cell surface are any different now think about this one we have 200 different cell types three cell types decide to resist insulin how do the 197 other cell types avoid this and say oh we are happy with insulin we will respond to insulin normally we don't care what the other three cell types do how can this how how is that possible to me it is very illogical and i think i have put down enough points to prove or to support my contention that insulin resistance does not make sense as a cause of type 2 diabetes well you brought up some great points with the um the muscle tissue um or cells pardon me I know that when I was diagnosed I can tell you that I I could I couldn't walk I could barely walk because I really didn't have insulin that was ringing the doorbell to let glucose in and that is a symptom so there there's proof right there in a type 1 diabetic who did not produce insulin obviously that's why I have type 1 that I I couldn't walk I could barely breathe talking talking took too much out of me. And this is when I was first diagnosed because I was so very ill and I went to the emergency room and I'd had a cold and my parents quickly realized there was um at one point that was far more than a bad cold going on. I dropped uh, a lot a lot of weight. I was extremely underweight. I couldn't walk. They had to carry me to the car and then carry me into an emergency. I thought I could form words later on I found out that they couldn't understand me because I couldn't I couldn't muster up the energy to form the words properly it was exhausting and um when I heard them say that your daughter is a diabetic and I only caught little bits and pieces of the conversation cuz I was in and out of consciousness I thought I was going to die and I couldn't muster up the energy to cry and yet the emotion was so great and present so you really do lose the ability to function properly you don't have the strength in many different ways without the presence of insulin and what you to get into you know to allow the doorbell to ring for the cells to accept glucose so this glucose was in my blood and it was in my blood because my measurement was extremely high when i was rushed to sick children's hospital in toronto it was extremely high Having said all that, in type 2 it really is a different disease. Although they call it diabetes. 
because of similarities in low blood sugar, high blood sugar, and some of the medications. And of course, they have to balance exercise and food. But really, the cause is so, so very different. Having pointed all this out, and I, I'm the first one to say, I felt all those things. I don't know if my, the temperature of my body changed because I was so very ill. But I can tell you that I did feel cool. I felt cold. You know, when, when someone says their circulation's bad, I did feel cold. I didn't feel hot. And all those things did happen to me, and that was out the, without the presence of insulin. So you, you pointed out a hole that, that makes sense, that why doesn't that happen to these people if they are insulin resistant? Coming to your thought and rethinking this, which I'd like to explore, your theory, you've got a revolutionary theory that you've looked at and written this book about on why you think insulin resistance isn't really the phrase that we should be using when it comes to type 2 diabetes. Now, as I just said, I do not agree with insulin resistance as the cause of elevation of blood sugar. Now, the, the almost every cell in the body is an independent living unit. And almost every cell in the body is like a hybrid car. A hybrid car can use gas or electricity. Cells can use glucose or fatty acid for producing energy. When you are exercising for a long period of time, when you could not eat for an extended period as in fasting, your muscles still work. How do they work? Good question. They use, they, they use fatty acids for energy. They're, this is a perfectly natural metabolic process. So instead of this process happening occasionally, imagine if it happens more and more often and predominantly the muscles using fatty acids for energy, you will not feel any different except your blood sugar will stay in the blood because the muscles, the biggest user of glucose for energy will not be needing that because there are plenty of fatty acids. Now, the interesting thing about fatty acid is it can enter the muscle cell without any help from insulin or any other help. Why? Because our cell wall is made of fatty acids and cholesterol. So the fatty acids can wiggle into the muscle cell itself through the cell wall, any opening it can find, it can wiggle in. And once inside, they are escorted to the burning area to produce energy very easily. So the muscle cells don't care whether they get energy from glucose or fatty acid because once energy is produced, muscles can use it. So the real question is, what causes 
the excess of fatty acid circulating in the blood. Now, if we, we eat excess glucose or if our body absorbs glucose in excess of what we need immediately after a meal, the liver can store about 120 grams in the form of a complex carbohydrate called glycogen, which the liver will release back into the blood when your blood sugar goes down. If there is more glucose than the liver can accommodate, that will be converted to fat. That is the long-term storage form of energy. This fat is sent to the fat cells. Everyone inherits a certain capacity for storing fats. Some people have large capacity, some people have very minimum capacity. Just like different refrigerators with different capacities, you have different storage capacities for fat. If fat cells are full of fat, the liver will release the fatty acid as is into the blood. They will convert more fatty acids to fat and your fat level will go up. As I mentioned earlier, the triglyceride level will go up. That's the same as fat. However, the fatty acid level will keep going up and this fatty acid can enter the fat cell, uh, enter the muscle cell and be the fuel that muscle cells use, which means the glucose stays in the blood. Now, the beauty of this reasoning is you can be a lean person with very few fat cells in the body and you can become diabetic if your fat cells are saturated to capacity. On the other hand, you can be a grossly obese person with normal blood sugar because you have enormous fat storage capacity, genetically inherited of course, and you can store all the fat away from the blood and still have room for it so the blood glucose remains normal and the muscles will use glucose. The third and most interesting example of this is a woman who becomes pregnant and suddenly her blood sugar goes up. Gestational Even diabetes, that's what we call gestational. Correct. The gestational, the diabetes that happens during pregnancy, called gestational diabetes, in a person who may not have a family history of diabetes, who may have never had type 2 diabetes before, suddenly she is called a diabetic. Why? Is it? And the, and the very interesting thing for me is the cells that are supposed to be insulin resistant according to the current diagnosis of gestational diabetes are the very same cells that, that are termed resistant in other adults with type 2 diabetes. Anyway, that's a side issue. But how does my theory explain this finding? 
Most often, when ladies become pregnant, they are encouraged to eat for two people. So they keep eating, and within a short period of time, they can fill up their fat cells, and then the liver releases fatty acids into the blood, and the same thing as I explained earlier happens in women who have no more storage capacity for fat, fatty acid level goes up, the muscles start using fatty acid, glucose stays in the blood, and they are called diabetes. Now I have to ask you a question so, about this. I did some okay. um, work with gestational diabetics, and um, okay. uh, this was also during two pregnancies that I went through as a diabetic. The difference was I was always a diabetic and type one, and so this and this might be isolated to type one diabetes. So please correct me. It's just a question if I'm incorrect. So what I was told, because my insulin amounts went up uh, quite a bit, it wasn't until about the second trimester that my insulin requirements went up. They actually dropped a little bit in my first um, three months of pregnancy. And after that, they went up and they explained this to me um, through hormones, that I was producing a hormone during my pregnancy, starting at the second trimester, more so that it would affect my insulin. So this hormone actually makes my insulin not work as well. This was the explanation that I was given. Very layman, obviously, and that's why I needed more insulin. So what they said to me is, during your pregnancy, Anita, gradually your insulin intake will raise. You'll have to watch for dramatic drops in your blood sugar because that will happen too during your pregnancy. But after you deliver the baby you will go a period of time where you won't need insulin because for whatever reason, my body's flooded with it. There was a reason given to me. Again, very layman. All of these things happened. And then about uh, maybe four days after um, I had my first child, my son, I didn't have insulin for those four days. All of a sudden, I required insulin. And they were very cautious to give it to me, but I felt the symptoms right away of high blood sugar even ketones um, seemed to be creeping up. I could just feel it in my body. And so the doctor said, yes, okay, we'll give you insulin now. They were very resistant, but they gave me insulin, the intern that was on call at that point. So why is this, Is could this be why some women get gestational? Are these, again, very different things because of two different types of conditions, although they're both called diabetes? Uh, I, I'm not... Uh, well-versed in type 1 diabetic females who become pregnant, what happens with their hormones in the body and why you went through what you went through. Well, apparently so this I is the norm. This is what always happens when a woman's pregnant. I would feel it immediately because I don't produce insulin. Right. Um, but they say the, the explanation was uh, put to me that this is what always happens to women, the hormone, and, and that's what detects that you're pregnant. You produce hormones that show that you're pregnant, that you produce when you're pregnant, and these hormones um, make insulin's job more difficult. And well, I'm just I'm, I'm curious yeah, if I'm, that's why someone I'm, could I'm, be. 
from what he told me, I'm curious, I mean, I'm also confused in the sense, on the one hand, you're saying the placenta is releasing hormones that makes it difficult for the insulin to work. And on the other hand, you're saying soon after um, delivery, you don't need insulin uh, at all. How uh, can you, these two? I'm, you're no more confused than I am. Now that right. we're talking more in depth, um, on the subject, right. I accepted it at the time um, and because I, I had to. I didn't have time to do research. In other words, it, it was what it was. I did what I was told, and it worked quite well, and I have two beautiful children. Nonetheless, I am a type 1 diabetic, so that's, that's very different from women that develop it, perhaps, Correct. just when they're pregnant. And right. what a lot of these women are told, that they're at great risk of developing uh, type 2 diabetes for 10 years after they have the child. I, I well, did, In a previous it, episode, I, I actually interviewed a woman who was diagnosed with gestational diabetes and ended up on insulin. And she said she they really told her to be cautious because she was in a greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes for, I believe, well, five to 10 years after her, the birth of her child. Right. That, that can be very easily explained because... When she was pregnant, she put on weight, she filled up her fat cells, the fatty acids remained in the blood, and muscles, as I explained, used fatty acid as fuel, the glucose remained in the blood, and she was diagnosed as type 2 diabetic in pregnancy. Imagine if you gain the same amount of weight, whether you are pregnant or not. What's the difference? The same thing happens. When you gain the same amount of weight to fill up your fat cells, no matter what age it is, whether it is five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, it is the same. To me, it makes no difference whether you are pregnant or not. It is the fullness of your fat cell and the elevation of your fatty acid in the blood that is responsible, not whether you are pregnant or not. Interesting. So we went back to the capacity of storing fat. So even in a person that's slim that develops diabetes and it's type 2 other than type 1, um, you're saying that this could be just your your capability of storing fat. You, that particular individual has their own um, capacity. Some have greater capacity for storing fat and some have less. Exactly. This is why the person who may be lean can develop type 2 diabetes even when they gain what is considered as normal weight gain. If you look at the weight tables, there is an enormous range for the same height person what is considered as normal. How do you know what is your authentic weight? You cannot go by a weight table. The weight table by itself is not a scientifically measured, accurate weight. They are self-reported weight. They are derived from self-reported weights of people who wanted to take life insurance with Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Wow. So that is where, that is where these weight tables are coming from. How reliable can that be? 
Well, it's, I agree. I do know that for my height, there is a huge difference and it varies from 99 pounds up to 130. Right. Because I'm just not- shy of 5'1". I'm not even 5'1". I'm I, five foot and I don't know, a half an inch or something. And the the table says 99 to 130 pounds. And then they'll even take your age into account and it can vary a little more. Uh, but nevertheless, that's, that's quite a range. Right. Suppose you have only five pound capacity to store fat. If you gain 20 pounds, you could become a type 2 diabetic, but they will tell you you are normal weight. And that's so very true because you're within that range. Yeah. And and the, the problem with that thingy, that concept is that people who are lean or considered normal weight or underweight are at greater danger of developing complications of type 2 diabetes because they are never asked to lose weight. They are never asked to empty the fat cells. They are at the mercy of medications and they lose hope that they can be in charge of their own illness. They They are told to depend on medications. And even if you take a medication, such as insulin, bring your sugar down. Have you ever asked the doctor, where does that sugar go? What happens to that sugar? Did that get out of your body? This is the question that every diabetic should be asking their doctors. Well, it does seem, as you're saying, it really points out and brings home that we're individuals. That, I'm sorry? That we're individuals, that we're not cookie cutters. So, Correct. Each, each person has to treat the illness based on his, own, his or her body type and how much capacity you have to store fat away from your blood. In saying that, we really should be overall eating healthy Right. And looking at ourselves yeah. as an individual. Now, right. your, your book, and we're, because we're talking about fat, I just want to point out to my listeners in your book, you don't talk about any um, commercial diet plan whatsoever. I, I do not have any recipes, any agents to sell, to promote a particular uh, metabolism or any products. No. I want each individual to take responsibility for their own health, food, eating, and well-being. So in each you live, I lay out the reasoning why I say this, because when you sit down to eat, how can anybody else know what your body needs? Nobody knows. It's... And your body really does. I think that's another big issue, that your body knows what it needs. But a lot of times, we don't know how to listen. We've tuned that out. Right. Only your brain knows the need of, with regards to the nutrients at that particular time. And again, 
the the nutrient needs change from minute to minute from hour to hour from day to day how can anybody keep track of that and tell you this is what you should eat at any given meal and more importantly the quantity how can anybody know that and I've, you've really pointed that out through some wonderful examples when we've spoken how powerful the brain is, even when it comes to low blood sugars. And I want to just share this because we're talking about the brain and what the, the brain knows, the nutrients the body needs, and that changes from time to time. But when a, a person has a low blood sugar, um, there's several different things that may happen. All of it uh, can lead to shakiness. Uh, different sy- symptoms, in other words, the body, you know, to touch somebody would perspire, they get panicky, they can't form their words properly. There's all different things that can happen when we have a low blood sugar. And you pointed out to me when you asked me a few questions, and we were talking about low blood sugar. She said, Anita, how long before you know a recovery from a low blood sugar? And I said, About 15 minutes. And you pointed out to and- me that in those 15 minutes, how does that? sugar work that quickly it has to get into your body and do something so there is a start we establish that as soon as you take sugar there is a start to combating a low blood sugar but what i didn't put together and you pointed out to me and i'm I'm so happy that you did is it's the brain so when you put that sugar on the tongue you're telling the brain that you're giving it something you need and it's happening so that you can calm the body down in order to deal with this low blood sugar. Right. What I'm pointing out is the fact that you're feeling the nervousness, the palpitation, the uneasiness from low blood sugar because the body, the brain has recognized the sugar is falling. You need to get up and move and get food. So the body will release, the brain will send a signal to the adrenal gland to release adrenaline. And this is the adrenaline that makes you have all these symptoms. So the first thing you have to do is to let the brain know food is coming so the brain can send a signal to the adrenal gland to stop releasing more adrenaline. In order for the brain to know, all you have to do is to put some sugar on the tongue where the sweet sensing taste receptors will pick it up immediately. In other words, even though you may have a meter to measure the blood sugar, even though you may know that if I blood sh- take blood sugar levels, I, do, I may not need uh, e- to eat immediately because what I am feeling may not be because of low blood sugar. When you feel something like that, put a sugar-containing tablet or sugar granules or a sugar-containing hot candy on your tongue while you are checking the blood sugar. Because even though it may take 15 minutes or, you know, if you have a meter handy, if you can do it right away, you may know your blood sugar level immediately. But suppose you could not get to it. Suppose there is a delay in measuring. Why do you want to wait? Send the signal to the brain that sugar is coming. What harm can happen if you take five grams of sugar that you may not eat? A couple of lifesavers, even, right? It doesn't matter. 
a little bit of yeah. sugar. And, right. I think that's what people miss, how powerful the brain is in detecting it and the signals it will send out knowing, wow, we need sugar. And here's how it shows up. And it's the brain that does this. And some people call it sugar brain. Uh, when they've had a low blood sugar, they'll say, well, I wasn't thinking correctly and I was all panicked and it was sugar brain. Well, it really is. It's the brain. Indeed. It yeah. is the brain telling the body, we need sugar on board here. So the brain's also going to tell you it needs nutrients. And a lot of times I think there's a, well, we're not paying attention. We're not paying attention to our own bodies. Correct. And that leads us to eating and it leads us to all kinds of things. And in your book, you talk about how you can prevent and possibly reverse diabetes. And this is what we're going to get into following our next interview. You are coming back next week. We are talking about what we can do to prevent perhaps reverse diabetes and how the body, in essence, how the body can heal itself. I would be happy to come back and have us continue this conversation. It's a big conversation and it's a big theory and a, and a wonderful book. So I look forward to the next part of our interview where we discuss, in essence, how can the body heal itself? I thank you and the listeners. So join us next week when we come back and talk to um, Dr. Puthalil about his theory of diabetes and why we have it and what we can do to heal ourselves, how the body can heal itself, prevent diabetes, even reverse it. So join us next week. If you have any questions about today's interview, please email me, Anita at anitacoach.ca, and follow me on Twitter at Anita Westlake.